chapter 20, verses 1 to 10 is our text. Revelation 20, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding a key, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of a dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be, rele- must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony, or rather because, because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet also are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's go to God's throne once more to seek his blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of his holy word. Let's pray. We come, our Father, to humble ourselves under your almighty word. We praise you, O God, for your word. We praise you for the revelation of all the scriptures. We praise you in particular for this revelation of visions in uh, the apocalypse of John, in the revelation to John. We ask, O God, that as we examine a a difficult passage uh, in a difficult book in Scripture, that you would be with us and that you would guide us now by the Holy Spirit and give us insight and understanding through his leadership, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 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 
we have reached the last cycle of the seven cycles of visions in Revelation in chapter 20 through 22. One of our young members uh, some time back asked me uh, if in the book of Revelation we ever get out of the first century, uh, at least in, as I uh, have expressed my take to you, uh, if we ever get out of the first century. And so I'll say to that young member uh, today and to the rest of you, we're getting out of the first century here. We're moving into uh, a section of Revelation that is quite contemporary to us. And as we come to the first passage here in uh, verses 1 to 10, especially verses 1 to 6, we come to what's probably the most controversial passage in Revelation. In verses 1 through 3, John sees an angel descending from heaven, seizing, chaining, and locking in the dragon into the abyss for a thousand years. In Latin, a millennium to keep the dragon from deceiving the nations for that extended period of time. And then verses 4 through 6, he sees thrones and those who sat on them, along with the souls of martyrs beheaded for their testimony, who come to life in the first resurrection and reign with Christ for the same period of time, for 1,000 years. There are three predominant views of the millennium, though within each view there are variations of interpretation that we can't begin to discuss today, and uh, frankly, what all I can really do is give you a, a, the briefest of summaries of what these, few, uh, these three views are. In the first place, there's a view called premillennialism. A traditional premillennialism holds uh, that Christ's physical return to earth will occur before the thousand years, hence the prefix pre. So before the, this millennium, before this thousand years that, we're, uh, that, that Revelation 20 verses 1 to 10 speaks about here, uh, Christ will return that these thousand years are literal and that the reign referred to, the reign of the saints with Christ, verse 4, is a physical reign on earth. The saints will physically reign with Christ on the earth. That's pre-millennialism. post Millennialism holds that Christ's physical return will occur after the thousand years, after the age symbolized by the thousand years, hence the prefix post, uh, that the reign described in verse 4 is a spiritual reign during the thousand years. There's another view called awe millennialism. 
Amillennialism shares with postmillennialism the belief that Christ's bodily second coming will occur after the period symbolized by the thousand years and that the reign spoken of here in Revelation 20 verse 4 is a spiritual reign. Amillennial is something of a misnomer because the prefix awe means no, as in no millennium. Amillennialists do believe in a millennium, just not a literal period of a thousand years, but a symbolic age and not a physical reign, but a spiritual one. That's the most I'm going to do to talk about these various views of the millennium this morning. From these descriptions, I hope you can see that post-millennialism and all-millennialism share a certain degree of commonality. Orthodox Christianity has always recognized that Christ's millennial reign began at his resurrection, ascension, and enthronement and continues until all things have been thoroughly subdued under his feet as Peter clearly proclaimed in his day of Pentecost sermon recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 30 to 36. The millennium in these terms is simply Christ's kingdom. It's Christ's millennial reign, his mediatorial reign. It was inaugurated at Christ's first advent, has been in existence for almost 2,000 years, and it will go on until Christ's second advent, the second coming of Christ at the last day. In millennial terminology, this means that the return of Christ and the resurrection of all who have ever lived will take place after the millennium. At the same time, Orthodox Christianity has always rejected the notion that the reign of Christ is something wholly future. This idea that, that Christ uh, will reign in the future when he returns after the millennium. It's rejected that future, futuristic uh, view, and it's rejected the idea uh, that uh, Christ's return is followed by a physical reign with believers on earth for a literal thousand years. Revelation is a book of symbols, and the thousand years is a symbolic period. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, tells us three things that are characteristic of the millennium, three things that are characteristic of this symbolic thousand-year period. 
These are not the headings of the sermon, by the way. Those will follow this brief summary. First, at its inception and for most of its duration, at the inception of the millennium and for most of the duration of the millennium, Satan is bound. And his ability to deceive the nations and and to assault the church is limited. Second, during the millennium, Christ is reigning with all believers who have come to life in the first resurrection, whether living or dead. Third, at its conclusion, Satan is briefly released from his restraint to deceive the nations. He leads them in a failed attempt to destroy the church, leading to his final judgment in the lake of fire. So we'll look at those three things, the binding of Satan in the first place, the saints reign with Christ, secondly, third, Satan release for a short time. The binding of Satan, the saints reign with Christ, and Satan release for a short time. The first place in the binding of Satan, in verses 1 through 3. In verse 1, John sees an angel coming down from heaven. He has the key of the abyss and uh, a great chain in his hand. And no description uh, is given of this angel. But the fact that he's able to bind the strong adversary of God and man has led some to conclude that the angel is Christ himself, whose absolute control and authority over the abyss are symbolized by the key and the great chain. In that event, the vision is setting up a striking contrast between Satan, the star that fell from heaven, who was briefly given the key to the abyss. Remember that all the way back in chapter 9 and verse 1. The angel of the abyss, which is surely Satan, the the dragon, the devil. A contrast between Satan who fell and Christ who descended from heaven, having in his possession the keys of death and Hades, as Jesus is described in that first vision in chapter 1 and verse 18. In verse 2, John brings together the descriptions of the evil one that he's used throughout this prophecy. The dragon, the serpent of old, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. All of those appear together in the same order in Revelation 12 through 9, which, remember, describes the... uh, the cosmic battle between the dragons, Satan, and uh, the church of Jesus Christ. But the terrifying power of this enemy only serves to display the surpassing greatness of his conqueror, who has easily rendered him impotent. 
Jesus Christ, in his mission as uh, the angel from heaven, laid hold of the dragon and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. This is nothing different than what the Bible elsewhere declares. John, in his first epistle, 1 John 3, 8, says that Christ appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Why did Christ come? What's the real message of Christmas? Christ appeared, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. You won't find that on Christmas cards, but that's, that's the reality that John sets before us in 1 John 3, verse 8. Hebrews 2.14 makes this abundantly clear as well. Since then, the children share in his flesh and blood, that is in Christ's flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. In terms of this purpose, Jesus began to bind the strong man during his earthly ministry. Having successfully completed his mission, Jesus is now plundering the strong man's house. He's carrying off uh, his property. He's carrying off Satan's property. He's plundered his house. Christ's superior power over Satan and Satan's dominion was manifested at the very beginning of his ministry by overcoming the devil's temptation in the wilderness. This was the beginning of his victory and the coming of Christ's kingdom. Christ's binding of Satan was further accomplished through his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation to the right hand of God. Satan's binding here in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, presents only one phase of Christ's triumph over all his enemies. The final defeat of the devil is described in verse 10, the end of our text. And the Messiah's triumph over the last enemy, death and Hades, is spoken of in verses 13 and 14 here in chapter 20. These closely related visions constitute a series of victories which run through the entire period called symbolically a thousand years, a period we also call the millennium. The cross was D-Day, doomsday for Satan. The second coming is V-Day for Christ, Victory Day. 
So Satan is bound. That's the first thing that we see here. And one of the things that we need to understand is that doesn't mean that Satan is inactive. Peter, uh, you remember, 1 Peter 3.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that means if you're a Christian, he's seeking you to tempt you, to devour you, to destroy you, to destroy your soul because he hates you and he hates you because he hates Christ. So Satan, Satan's binding here by uh, the strong angel, uh, the angel that ascended from heaven, doesn't mean that he's no longer a- active, but it does mean that he's no longer able to prevent the spread of the gospel to the nations. And that's clearly expressed to us here in verse 3 of our text. Verses 3 and 7 tells us that, that at the end of the millennial age, Satan will be released and will lead a rebellion against Christ. Satan, sin, and death will not be completely destroyed until the final consummation at the second coming of Christ. So the devil is bound. That's the first thing uh, that we see. Satan is bound. Secondly, the saints reign with Christ in verses 4 through 6. In these verses, John describes those whom he sees reigning with Christ during the millennium, during the thousand years, this symbolic period of time. First, he tells us that he saw thrones and they sat on them. He doesn't tell us here who they are, who sat on them, but they are elsewhere, everywhere in the book of Revelation. John has only used this expression to refer to the 24 elders. In our, when we first encountered the 24 elders sitting on thrones in Revelation chapter 4, we said in our exposition of that text that the 24 elders represent uh, the 12 tribes of Israel and uh, the 12 apostles. Uh, 24. And uh, that these 24 elders represent uh, all believers of all ages. So the ones sitting on thrones here in Revelation... In the first place, are all the saints of all generations reigning with Christ during this period of a thousand years, during the millennium. Then he sees martyrs. He sees those who've been beheaded uh, for uh, the sake of Christ, for their uh, testimony uh, of Jesus, and because of Uh, the word of God. These martyrs 
and others who have uh, proceeded to heaven, uh, whose perfected souls exist now in heaven. Uh, they are reigning with Christ as well. So the reference to the thrones and the martyrs indicates that the, this vision embodies the entire community of God's redeemed people, both living and dead, reigning during the millennium, reigning during the, the symbolic period of a thousand years. Another indication of this is his reference to their partaking in the first resurrection in verses 5 and 6. The first resurrection, as we find it here in our text, is Christ's resurrection. It refers to uh, the resurrection of Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23. Christ is the first fruits of the dead. You remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And only those who are Christ's, only those who belong to Jesus, only those who have uh, been united to Christ by faith take part in this first resurrection. The believer's participation in this first resurrection is spoken in uh, spoken of in the, the past tense in terms of our uh, regeneration or spiritual resurrection. We could go to a number of places uh, to, to find this, but we'll look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, this is really a wondrous text uh, where we find Paul expressing to us the, the beauty of our, uh, the reality of our a position in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were dead, Paul says. We were dead in transgressions and sins. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That doesn't describe some future time of a bodily resurrection, it describes a spiritual resurrection for everyone who's been united to Christ by faith. In the future tense uh, of our, uh, th th this, this resurrection is also uh, described, nevertheless, in future terms in Romans chapter 6, uh, 1 Corinthians, again, 1 Corinthians 15, 23, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. The dead in Christ shall rise first. That's what Paul says there as he's speaking to the Thessalonians and seeking to give them comfort and encouragement concerning uh, the Christian dead who, whose souls are, have been taken to heaven and, and uh, exist there. In other words, then, all who have been raised spiritually will be raised bodily. That's what the Bible teaches. God also tells us in verse 6 that the second death has no power over those who have participated, have a part in the first resurrection. Uh, 
The first resurrection is spiritual. The second resurrection is physical, bodily. The first death is physical. The second death is spiritual, eternal death in the lake of fire. Chapter 20, verse 14. In verse 5, John tells us that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This specifically describes the raising of the dead who are not in Christ to be judged at the great white throne judgment. This final judgment is described in detail in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. We're coming to that next week, Lord willing. In his gospel, John refers to this as a resurrection of judgment. John chapter 5, verses 28 to 29. The bodies of all people, believers and unbelievers, will be raised up at this last hour, but there's a distinct difference in the nature of the resurrection of believers and unbelievers. Unbelievers never partake in any sense in the resurrection of Christ. They remain in a state of spiritual death until they're raised to face the second death, the final death, the eternal death in hell. The bodily resurrection of believers, on the other hand, is referred to as a resurrection of life there in John chapter 5, verses 20 to 28. I know that's a lot of information. And I know it's hotly debated as to what all these things mean. But there is a, a, there's a practical uh, significance. There was a practical significance to uh, the churches that read Revelation, John's Revelation, of the seven churches to whom this letter was addressed, the, uh, the other churches to whom this uh, letter Circulated. They would have been comforted by the knowledge that they were reigning with Christ during this symbolic period of a thousand years. That those on earth during the thousand years, the thousand years is the church age. That means that we are reigning with Christ now. That's what the Bible tells us as Christians. We are reigning with Christ. Uh, you may not fully comprehend that. You may not understand all that that means, but nevertheless, it's the reality that's presented in Scripture that you, as a believer in Christ, you are reigning with him through the church age, through this symbolic period of a thousand years. That also means that the Christian dead in heaven are reigning, and we are reigning together. That there is a connection between those of us here who remain on earth and those in heaven. 
That would have given, remember, as, again, as Paul said in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, as he was seeking to provide comfort to those whose Christian dead had, had, were, had uh, gone on to heaven, gone to their heavenly reward, uh, that they were not forgotten, that they would return with Christ at his second coming. So those who were alive at the time when uh, Jesus was uh, revealing this and those who, who read this letter or heard it read, uh, they would have taken great comfort both in what God says about them and what God says about their departed loved ones. It means we aren't completely disconnected. That in the, the spiritual reality set forth here in Revelation chapter 20, we aren't completely disconnected from those who are in heaven. In fact, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us that we gather with those who are in heaven to worship. That's a hard thing to grasp. But it ought to give us comfort. And it ought to give the church of Jesus Christ comfort today that they are reigning with Christ. There's, a, there's one really big reason why that ought to give us comfort, and that's because the victory belongs to Jesus. So, Satan bound, the saints reigning with Christ, and then thirdly, Satan released for a short time, verses 7 to 10. The completion of the thousand years, the end of uh, the millennial reign, that is, the present church age, brings with it the release of the dragon from his prison. And he emerges to deceive the nations throughout the world. Now, explicitly, those nations are called Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war, verses 7 and 8. John's vision of the thousand years in verses 1 to 3 carries us back to the defeat of Satan at the cross, at Christ's first coming, and the devil's resultant inability to impede the progress of the gospel, to hold the Gentile nations in darkness and use their power as a weapon to destroy the church. That's what Satan was doing there in the first century. We've seen that over the course of our exposition, that Satan was using uh, the Roman Empire to attack the church, and uh, other nations gathered together with the Roman Empire to attack the church, in addition to the false prophet, the apostate Jews. that that was the nature of the devil's being bound, that is, his limited ability to deceive the nations. The nature of that restriction now we're, uh, is, is, is confirmed here in our text in this section. Now, as the thousand years 
uh, draw through a close, verses 7 to 10, John's vision uh, has reached the point in history immediately before Christ's second coming to complete God's wrath against his enemies when the dragon's demonic deception will have gathered together a worldwide conspiracy against uh, the Lord Christ and his church so that at the very end of a long period of Christian ascendancy, of gospel prosperity, Satan is permitted to lead the church astray again, or the nations astray again. The description of his final conflict in verses 7 to 10 connect it with Jehovah's war against the aggressor Gog and Magog uh, prophesied in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. So many times we have seen again and again the the key to understanding uh, the symbols of Revelation or to see their origin in the Old Testament scriptures. If you want to understand Revelation, you need to understand the symbols of Revelation. If you want to understand the symbols, you better understand their Old Testament origin. And here, uh, we're looking to Ezekiel 38 and 39, which are symbolic here, are types of uh, what's going on in this vision to John describing uh, the deception of the nations, the gathering of the nations in this final battle against Christ and his church. The nations involved uh, in the conflict are described as being at the four corners of the earth. That is over the face of the whole earth, all the nations of the earth. The name given to them, Gog and Magog, is taken from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Didn't read the whole thing. We just read one part of it, but you saw that, uh, that term Gog expressed there. In Ezekiel, this referred to an unbelieving, savage nation from the north. The prophecy there is against Gog, the prince of the people, and Magog, the people themselves. When they attacked Israel in overwhelming numbers, they were nevertheless defeated, and so they serve as a fitting type an Old Testament type for this final international version of the same kind of thing here at the end of the thousand years, the millennium. In Ezekiel's prophecy, old Israel is assaulted by Magog, and Magog was overthrown. And here... In the vision to John, the new Israel is assaulted by this Magogian confederacy, and they too are defeated immediately. Satan's deception was initially successful. He's been loosed once again to deceive the nations, to gather them together, 
uh, and to go to war against Christ and his church. And it was a, uh, he was able to gather an army like the sand of the sea. One of the questions that might arise is why God allows for something like this. After the world was successfully evangelized. And perhaps the best explanation is that he's showing us that salvation is all of grace. After centuries of gospel glory, it would be easy for those in the church to begin to take credit for what the gospel had accomplished. And so God illustrates for us the fact that apart from grace, the human heart remains exactly the same. What it's always been in bondage to sin, unable to please God without faith. We can't please God without faith in Christ. You can't please God without faith in Christ. You are consigned to, uh, the, to the, the lake of fire. I have a relative who's fond of talking about the lake of fire. Um, he often uses it in, in evangelism to talk to those who are, uh, who, who are denying Christ, who, who won't believe Christ. And he does it so often, we hear it from him so often, that we, we begin to kind of just brush it off. But you see, there is, uh, symbolically, there is a lake of fire. It's otherwise known as hell. It's a real place. And those who've denied Christ, those who don't take part in the first resurrection, which is a spiritual resurrection, that is, those who aren't born again, those who, uh, who are not... Uh, by the Holy Spirit's help and able to see their sin and their misery, those who have not been enlightened in the knowledge of Christ, who haven't been by the Holy Spirit persuaded and enabled to embrace Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel, those who are not granted the grace of repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ, remain dead in their sins and will suffer the penalty of their sins in hell forever. That's the reality that the Bible teaches throughout, and that's the reality that the Bible is setting before us now. It's a stark reality. It's a difficult reality. But it's nevertheless a true reality. It's a call to anyone who refuses to humble themselves and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his lordship, to come by faith. Faith is the means. Faith is the key to escaping the lake of fire. And this preacher is now calling any who are here today or any who are listening 
uh, by means of a recorded audio or the video feed to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So after a long period of gospel glory, Satan is permitted one last attack on the object of his malice, which is the Christian church. This is pictured by two images in verse 9, the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The camp of the saints brings to mind Israel's sojourn in the wilderness, and the beloved city is a reference to the new Jerusalem, which we're coming to in chapters 21 and 22, the Christian church. Both descriptions of God's beloved people, both descriptions of the apple of God's eye. And because the church of Jesus Christ will at that point be located all over the earth, we see the enemies of God going up, verse 9, on a broad plain or uh, the breadth of the earth. Satan has been released. Satan, the devil of old, the great deceiver, is attacking in one final attempt to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. But the outcome of this attack is not in doubt. That's what our text teaches us. This is an attempted murder. It's not a murder. The faithful are surrounded by these armies that the devil has gathered together to attack the saints. So they have full opportunity to trust in the Lord. But the Lord will defend his people and he will rain down upon his enemies fire and brimstone. Verse 9. There's no reason to assume here that the fire is merely symbolic. Much of what we have seen in Revelation is symbolic. But I don't think this is symbolic at all. Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 1, that in the final judgment, the Lord Jesus shall be reviled from, uh, revealed rather, from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. The destruction of Satan and of Gog and of Magog take place at the second coming of Christ. The beast and the false prophet were thrown into the lake of fire in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, chapter 19, verse 20. Now the devil is consigned to the lake of fire in brimstone, verse 10. No longer in the abyss. He's now in the place of final death, in hell itself. In that place, he is tormented 
along with all other inhabitants of hell, day and night, forever and ever. Satan is called the prince of darkness. He's not the king of hell. Jesus Christ is the king of hell. And hell is a place where those who are dwelling there will be separated from the favorable presence of God and his Christ forever and ever. What are a number of practical things that we can take away from this text? In the first place, take encouragement in the reality that Satan is in chains, that he's locked up in the abyss. Don't underestimate his limited power to tempt God's people. Remember that warning in the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be of sober spirit. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We ought always remember that as Christians, we have a target on our back. We ought always to remember that we are engaged in spiritual warfare, which we often forget to our detriment, so that we don't have our guard up. Always need to have our guard up as Christians. But don't overestimate Satan's power either. Satan is now in chains, locked up in the abyss during this thousand years, during the church age, the age in which we now live and move and have our being. Listen to Martin Luther. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. So here James, chapter 4, verse 7 of his epistle, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Take encouragement as well in your reign with Christ, together with all the saints, living or dead. The promise of this reign can be traced all the way back to Exodus 19, verse 6, where God said to his people of old, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter applies it to the church in 1 Peter Verse, uh, chapter 2 and verse 9, but you, he says to the church of Jesus Christ, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This has been a predominant theme 
in the book of Revelation. Christ has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 1, verse 6. Right, after, right out of the gates in of these visions to John in Revelation, God says this to his people, uh, that we are a kingdom of priests, that we are kings uh, and priests. It's, it's repeated in the new song of Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. The Lamb is worthy. Jesus Christ is worthy to take the scroll and break its seals, for he was slain and purchased for God with his blood people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and has made them to be a kingdom and priests to their God, and they will reign upon the earth. Another important reality for the Christian to keep at the forefront of the mind. And as you go forth to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, as you pray for the church of Jesus Christ in the millennial age, in the church age, Take encouragement in the reality that the outcome of our battle is not in doubt. Uh, When you are surrounded, when the church is surrounded by opposition, as we are today, we ought to take the opportunity to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Revelation says will defend his people and will rain down fire upon his enemies. Listen to Luther again. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be. Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Lord, our God, though many may laugh, many may even smirk at these realities in your word, we nevertheless now pray that you would, to all your true people, make these realities, secure these realities in their hearts. We pray, O God, that we might take encouragement, though... This section of Revelation may be difficult. And though we can't uh, seem to get our heads quite completely around all of the things that these symbols represent, uh, Lord, convince us that these are the reality, the spiritual realities in which we live and move and and have our being. Cause us to to take encouragement and to be aware uh, of the devil's attacks but to rest secure in Christ and to trust in him throughout our spiritual pilgrimage, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.